You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here. So where do we even begin? Uh, Let's start by talking about Netflix. Um, I'm not going to ask how many of you have a Netflix account, although I would love to know how many of you are borrowing someone else's account. That's a different sermon, but we'll get there. But uh, let me start by asking this. How many of you have ever binge watched a show? Oh, yeah. All right. Very good. Okay. I've only ever binge watched two shows in my life. Uh, The first was I binge watched uh, season one of Daredevil when that came out. Oh, big fans of Daredevil. Listen, young Catholic man struggles with wearing a mask and killing people at night. I'll sign up for that. So um, the second show that I binge watched is uh, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And uh, now I remember I watched the first episode. My day off is Friday. I watched the first episode on a Friday and I'm like, oh, now I know what I'll be doing all weekend. It was, how many of you have seen that show? Can I ask that? Okay. Oh, yeah. Several people. Nine, 9.45 had the most. And I'm assuming those are the cleanest homes in our church. So, but that's just a, a theory. But anyway, so the show is simple for those of you that haven't seen it. Uh, Marie shows up at someone's house with a translator because she only speaks Japanese. And uh, she teaches people how to get rid of all their clutter. But it's not just clutter. What you learn as you watch the show is that the clutter for couples is the root problem as to why they can't communicate. For parents, clutter is keeping them from loving their children. For kids, clutter is hurting their parents, and tidying up is their physical gesture on how to thank their parents for all their hard work and sacrifice. And and you might say, oh, it's like hoarders. No. It's not like hoarders at all. Hoarders, which by the way is interesting enough, but hoarders is all about the spectacle of the mess. Tidying up with Marie Kondo is about a cleansing that'll take us into the future. And by the way, and you're like, okay, it's show, but let me tell you something. Make no mistake, you will cry. You just will. And you don't know how is it that these people that are such a disaster, how will they sneak into your heart? You will never know. But that one guy that owned 167 pairs of sneakers, right here, he snuck into my heart. And I was, I was, I was walking with him by the end. And, I'm, and, and, and it just, I don't know what it is. So I started watching it. Then I watched three episodes. Then I stopped and I redid my entire closet. If you walk into my, my closet today is a palace where kings and dignitaries could dine. It is an amazing place. The next day, Carrie and I woke up and I, I just couldn't stop talking about it. We watched f- the, the last uh, four or five episodes and we went through, the, our, we spent the whole day cleaning our kitchen and... Um, we were, and listen, it wasn't just that. I read both of Marie Kondo's books. I was going on YouTube because there are odd items that you have to learn how to fold. How do you fold a scarf the correct way? Not like an animal. How do you fold it the correct way? I had to learn that. And so, and here's how bad it got is that we were in it. Listen, I remember I got to, because um, you get rid of all this stuff. I brought it to Goodwill. There was a bunch of people there and everybody was like, Marie Kondo, <laughs> you know it. And uh, we had like a little small group. We closed in prayer and everything uh, at the, at right, outside of, right outside of Goodwill. And then, um, but we had this, we, we were redoing our entire kitchen, getting rid of stuff. Does it spark joy? Does it not? Just say thank you and move on. Anyway, we were doing the whole thing. And then um, our kids were coming in, talking to us. And I'm like, hey, 
we'll deal with this in a little bit. Your mom and I are involved in a project here. And then, but what happens is later in the, the kids start fighting and arguing. My kids, thankfully, they really get along with each other. And my wife comes to this moment. She's like, oh no, I figured out why the kids are arguing and cranky. I'm like, why? She says, it's five o'clock and we forgot to feed them. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we're not winning any parenting awards today, are we? But have you heard this news? Have you heard that Marie Kondo gave up? Did you follow that? I follow things. And um, I read an article. She says she has embraced messy. How dare you? <laughs> if she knew how much I had sacrificed for her, she has embraced messy. And all for what? I love her reason. I just want to spend time with my kids. Come on. Grow up, lady. And, uh, and, and listen, and by the way, I am a person, and I know that some people don't have this in them, but I have this ability, it's called self-control, um, where I can just see something I don't like and just move on. I don't know, you have that? Like, you just like, see something on social media, and you're like, huh, that's weird, and then you just move on. You know how people, normal people do that? Then there's people who are unhinged, and uh, they, they just like start going on the attack on anything. And so anyway, but people started going crazy uh, because Marie Kondo embraced messy. And it was like, and the whole thing was, it, it, and this is why people, and I understand the, the reason people are upset. I just don't know why they feel the need to vocalize it. But the, par, the problem is, is that she was teaching us how to live better. And then she stopped living that way herself. And the problem is that's not how we're wired as people. The way that it works for us is that, and, and sometimes we don't want to admit this, but it is the truth, is that we learn best through people who model the way. That's why, listen, and, and all of us have people who have influenced us. We have people that we'd say, hey, they've been a mentor in our life. And what does that mean? That means that they've modeled the way for us. When Jesus invites us to be his disciple, he is inviting us to learn from him. In fact, that's what the word disciple means. It means learner. The Hebrew word is the word Talmud. And the job of a Talmud is to learn everything, to learn how to do life the way that their rabbi was doing it. And so you wanted to do everything exactly like your rabbi. That's why you would go wherever your rabbi would go. You wanted to talk like your rabbi. You wanted to walk like your rabbi. You wanted to eat like your rabbi. There are stories that are told of, rabbi, of students that would follow their rabbi into the bathroom. I kid you not. There's all these, why? Because there's prayers, and I know this sounds weird, but there's Jewish prayers about how God gives openings in our body to move things along, and they wanted to learn those prayers. This is not even, I wish I, they'd say this is even a well-crafted joke. It's not. This is just, there's prayers that are prayed for everything, and they're like, hey, we want to know that prayer too, and so they, they, would, they would do that. And now, and listen, that's why it kind of makes sense when um, the disciples of John the Baptist, John the Baptist would teach them how to pray. So it shouldn't surprise us in the gospel of Luke chapter 11, you'll see what it says. Now it came to pass when he, that is Jesus, was praying in a certain place. When he got done, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. It's not that they didn't know how to pray. It's that they wanted to pray exactly like Jesus because they wanted to be like Jesus in every possible way. And that's the goal. When we talk about being a disciple, and being a follower of Jesus, it's about learning how to be like him in every way, instance, situation, and circumstance. So we find ourselves in message number 48, our final message in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, Jesus, we, we talked about this, that Jesus had risen from the dead. We celebrated that. And then he told his disciples, if you remember, I want you to meet me in Galilee. 
And there, Jesus is going to give them his final message. And it's not just a message for them, it's also a message for us. It's a message about our mission. It's a message about the goal of our lives. And and here's what I believe. Listen, if we would really understand what Jesus is telling us, we would change the world. How do I know that? Because these 11 guys turned the world upside down simply because they embraced what Jesus told them there on that mountain in Galilee. And I believe that God can do it again. Listen, I believe that God can do it with us. But this message, if we would embrace it, one thing is for sure, it will change us. And if we change, it's only a matter of time before everything and everyone around us begins to change as well. So we're going to start in Matthew 28. We're going to start in verse 11. And here's what we read. It says, now, while they were going, that is the women were at the tomb, they were going to tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled the elders and consulted together, um, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if and this comes to the governor's ears. We will appease him and make you secure. Keep note of that. Remember that. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews till this day. And if you pause there and give me your attention. First thing I want to tell you about disciples is that disciples don't get distracted with nonsense. Now, I want you to note something. Because remember, there's an earthquake. If you remember the story when we talked about this at the beginning of uh, on our, our Easter message in Matthew 28, there's an earthquake. There, um, an angel shows up. The angel rolls away the stone. He sits on top of the stone. All of the, the, the soldiers saw that too. And that's when it says they reported to the chief priests everything that happened. And so then the elders, they get together and they're like, oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you some money. And you're going to say that while you were all sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body. And then, of course, if anything happens with the governor, that is Pontius Pilate, we'll take care of it. Now, there's three reasons why this story doesn't make sense. One that I call the logical reason, the second that I call the Roman reason, and the third is the personal reason. All right? Now, the logical reason is this. They say the disciples came and stole the body while we slept. So the question becomes, how would they know who stole the body? You were asleep. I don't know how it works in your life, but when I'm asleep, I don't know what's going on. It's not like, hey, you know, someone came into our bedroom last night. Really? I wouldn't know. I was asleep because that's the way things work. And so, and, and that's just, that, that's, that, so that just doesn't, doesn't work. The second problem is the way the Roman system worked, this was the incentive for Roman soldiers to do their job. Roman law was if you were a Roman soldier and you lost a prisoner, you got their sentence. So if Rome is going to execute someone and the, the, the person isn't there, the person who lost them, they're gone. It's done. And that's why Roman soldiers always slept in shifts to keep something like this from taking place. So if they really had lost the body of Jesus, the soldiers would have been executed. All right? So that's why they, they, the religious leaders say, take the money, and if anything happens, we'll talk to Pilate so that there's, there's no problem. The second thing is this. Now, this is the third one, the personal reason. How many of you would say that you're a light sleeper? Anybody? Light sleeper? How many of you would say that you're a heavy sleeper? These are my people right here. All right? When I was, uh, I'm I'm a very heavy sleeper. When I was a kid in Boston, we had a, and I know this sounds weird now, but we had a telephone pole in our front yard. And a car one night 
hit the telephone pole, like smash into the wooden telephone pole in our yard. The thing started tipping over and the, the, the other wires were hanging. Anyway, it was a mess. The fire department showed up, the police showed up, lights, sirens. All my neighbors came out to hear about all the commotion. I found out the next morning. I had slept through that entire thing. My wife, on the other hand, is an extremely light sleeper. My wife one time woke up and, and in the morning, and I'm like, hey, or she woke up and uh, she heard an alarm going off in our neighbor's house. Like, I don't know, that is next level, like spidey senses going on. It's like some people have an alarm six inches from their head and uh, they can't wake up. She probably woke up before my neighbor did. When you think about it, it's, that's, that's next level. And so, but I want you to imagine, let's even say they're heavy sleepers, all right? Let's say you're a Roman soldier and your whole group, you're dead asleep. The disciples show up as stealthy as Tom Cruise in all the Mission Impossible movies, right? They got the full wire thing, you know, they're doing that whole deal. And then they got their guy on, you know, one of the guys is on the computer. And uh, you, if you listen closely, you can hear the music. You got that going on. And by the way, I think as we've gone through, right, we've, we spent 14 months with these guys. I don't know if any of us looks at the disciples like, wow, this is an impressive bunch, right? These guys are knuckleheads, and that's putting it kindly, all right? So, we're, but we're going to just get out of the fact that they're not going to argue about which of one of them is the most awesome, which one of them is going to be the, the top dog in, in the kingdom. We're just going to say that all of them agreed that they were going to do this. They all kind of wore standard, you know, black, black gloves, you know, ski mask, the whole thing. Uh, and, um, and then they finally made it to the tomb. And then they're like, okay, these guys look like heavy sleepers. Thankfully, it won't be that loud while we move this two-ton stone from the... Could, this stone weighed 4,000 pounds. And you're going to do that without waking anybody up? Seriously? It just doesn't even make sense. That's why I think my favorite part of this whole thing is that Matthew doesn't even deal with it. He just puts it there. Hey, this is what these geniuses came up with. And uh, I just think that's so great. And, and he's right, and this is why. Because Matthew is writing from the perspective of what happened after the gospel started going forth. The church was born about 15, 20 years before he wrote his gospel. So the gospel was already transforming the entire region and so what he does is he's like, uh, they didn't transform the world by answering every nonsensical question that came up. They changed the world because their lives were changed and changed radically. And listen, that's why the greatest testimony in your life is always your changed life. The distance from who you used to be to who you are is the most powerful tool. Because the change that happened in your life is what people want for themselves. And listen, and I've shared this in the past, and uh, a lot of you know my story. I was on the five-year plan in high school, and um, I don't know how long it took you to graduate high school, but I really wanted to soak it in, so I went an extra year. And um, that's why I say being a senior was the best two years of my life. And um, I failed all four years of English, all four years of English, and then I had to go back in summer school, and I thankfully passed. Um, in summer school, but both sessions of summer school, I had to do that. And I remember it was about 15 years ago that I wanted to write. Uh, I really felt like, man, I have something to say. I wanted to write my first book. And um, I, I, didn't, I didn't think I could do it. And what's amazing is that I was right. 
um, I was a mess. And so uh, there's a publisher that I was talking to, and so I had submitted uh, a, and the way it works is, um, with writing a book is you submit a manuscript of the first couple chapters and then you do this whole book proposal and you submit it to a publisher. And so I submitted it and then they, they called me and they were like, hey, Bob, this was like the worst breakup call ever. And, uh, but they, they were calling me, they're like, Bob, you know, we really like you, but I think we should just remain friends. And uh, we think you have a great personality. And, uh, you know, there's the right publisher for you. They're going to come along. And uh, anyway, and so, um, and, and it's, not, it's not us, really, it's you. Um, and so, but anyway, they, they, they said, listen, Bob, we really like you, and, and, um, but here's, here's what we want to encourage you to do. And they told me, I kid you not, they're like, we want you to read these three books, and then we want you to submit something else to us. And uh, I, ki- I wish I could say that wasn't the case, but um, there's nothing, it, being broken up with is terrible. Being broken up with with homework, I think is probably even worse. One of the books they wanted me to read, I, kid, I can't even believe a book like this was ever even published. The book was called this, The Glamour of grammar. First of all, I was like, are you kidding me? But anyway, I read, I read the glamour of grammar. And um, there is, by the way, any of you suffer from an insomnia, I'm going to just throw, you know, put that in your Amazon cart. Glamour of grammar. There was an entire chapter dedicated to the proper use of a semicolon. And I I had never used a semicolon up until that time. It's like, hey man, I'm drug free and semicolon free. And uh, I had never used a semicolon in my life. I thought a semicolon was just a comma that hadn't really committed to its true calling. And so now, but I read it. I read all the books that they told me, and I, um, and, I, and, I, and I submitted more book proposals. And, um, and I, uh, fast forward, uh, I've written seven books. And, um, well, I appreciate that. And um, that little book begin that we give out, which, by the way, I had to talk the publisher into because they wanted me to write a different book, and I made them a deal. I'm like, I'll write this other book if you release this little book for new believers. Um, they didn't want to do it because there's no money in it. You can't, you can't make money on a book that sells for seven bucks. And, um, and so, but I didn't care. I just, I wanted there to be a resource for new believers. That book is in its seventh printing, and it is going all around the world. And, um, and, and listen, uh, if only pre-glamour of grammar Bob could see me now. Um, and, 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 you know, but can I tell you this, um, and there's a reason for all this, but, um, I've been finishing a master's degree in theology and I'm graduating in two weeks, by the way. Um, thank you. And, um, but I got a call this week and, uh, they said, Hey, you're, you're very, you know, from the school, from, uh, the seminary. And, uh, they said, Hey, we're very excited. You're graduating. We want to tell you, you're going to be the class valedictorian. And, uh, so that was, and I'm telling you, and I, and I just, I, I kid, this, I kid you not, and I'm telling you, I was by myself. I got the phone call. I was sitting in my office, and um, I got the phone call, and I'm like, wow, thank you so much. I hung up the phone. I thought for a minute, and I just started to cry, and, uh, and I just thought, I, I, if someone would have told summer school Bob, like when I was in my, in my when I, all my friends had graduated, and then I had to go to summer school and then go back for another year, and I just wish I could tell that Bob, hey, um, at some, you're going to be the number one student in a seminary in, in like 50 years. So just, you know, hang in there. And so <laughs> you're also going to be old enough to be their dad. Um, and so there's that. <laughs> there's that. But listen, can, let me tell you something. My, my, my point is this. The farther distance that there is from who you used to be to who God is recreating you to be, that is the most powerful testimony in your life. And listen, and I agree with the Apostle Peter in chapter three of his book when he says that we need to have an answer for the hope that's within us. I absolutely agree with that. But know this, we cannot argue people into the kingdom of God. 
your transformed life is the greatest advertisement for Christianity because you are showing people what God can do in someone's life when they surrender their life to Jesus. He goes on in verse 16 and he says this, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you, about disciples is disciples see Jesus beyond their doubts. Now, this is really important. We talked about this on Easter. I was able to touch on it, but I really couldn't uh, give it the proper time that it was due. But I want you to understand, uh, there's a few things that are, that, that are important here. They go to Galilee, they obey Jesus, they go to the mountain that he said, and then it says, when they saw him. So everybody there, the 11, they all see him. And the reaction of some is to worship, the reaction of others is to doubt. But the question is, what are, what are they doubting? And what is it that they're actually seeing? So let me explain this. I have a friend that lives in New York City. He is a huge, I mean, huge country music fan. It's all he listens to. And he, for years, has been trying to get me to listen to country music. And I am not a big country music fan. I always tell him, if you spin a country record backwards, you know what happens? You get your truck, your wife, and your dog back. And, um, and so, anyway, so... Uh, but he start, you know, I've, I've listened to a couple things, and I'm like, ah, oh, that's pretty good. Well, anyway, he lives in this big uh, New York City uh, high-rise, and for whatever reason, he lives, I don't know, you know, whatever, 30, 40 floors up, but he decided to get a dog, which, by the way, if you want to get a dog, good for you, but um, if you live in the heart of New York City, I mean, besides Central Park, there's what, this much grass in the entire city? And every time the dog needs to go out, you got to get on an elevator, go down 50 floors, and then this is a problem. Anyway, but you know, people aren't asking my opinion about their life choices, so they do what they do. So anyway, so every morning he gets up, he puts a little leash on the dog, he gets on the elevator, he, gets, he goes down, and, and every day that he goes down, he sees this, he says, I see this pretty girl that's walking her dog. And so they get down to the bottom, and then she goes her way, he goes his way, dog, dog does his thing, goes back up, goes back to his apartment. Well, one day, my friend's wife gets on the elevator with him, like, hey, let's go walk the dog together. So they get on the elevator. Sure enough, that pretty girl that's always there, she's there. They chit-chat for a few minutes. They get to the, the front, say hi to the bellman. They go one way. Uh, she goes the other. They go back. Dog comes back. They get back on the elevator. They go back up to their apartment. And um, my friend's wife turns to him and says, is that the pretty girl that you talk to every morning? He says, yeah, that's her. He says, honey, that's Beyonce. And, uh, and he says, Wow. Who's Beyonce? <laughs> he only listens to country music. If it was Garth Brooks or something, he might know, but he's like, I don't know who Beyonce is. Anyway, I was telling my kids this story. My son Xander starts dying laughing. Dad, that is hilarious. But seriously, who's Beyonce? Uh, <laughs> and so, so I want you to understand, when they don't recognize him or see him, it's not like, Jesus, no, never heard of him. I don't listen to, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't listen to that rabbi. You know, uh, it, it's not that. They, remember, they've been following Jesus for three and a half years. Remember what we said? The rabbi, the, the student wanted to do everything like the rabbi. So they were following Jesus, watching every word, watching everything he did, everything that he said. And so what is the problem? Okay. Let's back up a little bit. When Jesus rises from the dead, when he meets the women at the tomb, he tells them, go to this, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Now, we, this didn't happen the next day. In fact, we're not exactly sure when it happened. It was at least two weeks later. According to their chronology, it could have been as much as four weeks later that it happened. Now, 
But why does Matthew mention this? He mentions this because at the Last Supper in Matthew 26, Jesus talks about this, and it's in your notes. It says in verse 32 of Matthew 26, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, this is the part that I I didn't have time on Easter, but I wanted to drill down on because it really deserves um, a, a good understanding of us. So the question becomes, what were the disciples doubting? Were the disciples doubting that the resurrection took place? No. You know why? And I forgot to, um, well, I shouldn't say I forgot. I didn't have enough room in the outline. But I actually wrote out 10 uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And I'm I'm probably going to post this on social media so that you guys can see it and, uh, you know, do with it what you will. But um, but the, the thing that's important for you to note is this is that Jesus appeared to the women um, at the tomb. Then he appears, remember, on, this is on Resurrection Sunday. He appears to the 10 disciples without Thomas. A week later, he appears to the disciples with Thomas. He appears to Peter by himself. He appears to two men on the road to Emmaus. There's a lot of appearances. This is appearance about number five or six um, of Jesus after the resurrection. So, but I want you to note, this is the thing that, I, that I, I wish I had a little more time to talk about, but what is the commonality between all of them? Every, if you read all of these things, the commonality is they don't recognize him at first. In fact, let me show you. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, it's in your notes. It says, now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, underline this, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she, and she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Mary doesn't recognize him until she hears his voice. Once again, Mary's not the only one. Look a little further in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The same, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood in the midst, and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It was when they saw Jesus' wounds that they knew it was him. In Luke chapter 24, there's two disciples of Jesus who were walking. They're walking from Jerusalem to a town close by, just a few miles away, called Emmaus. And they're having the conversations that everyone has when they lose someone that they're close to. They're asking the, what do we do now, uh, conversation. Listen, these guys had walked away from everything to follow Jesus, and now Jesus is gone. I mean, what, what, what are they supposed to do? And so they're talking. Do we go back to our old careers, pretend like none of this happened? Do we try something new? Do we go back to our hometown and say, hey, it didn't work out with the rabbi from Galilee? They're also talking about we really thought he was the Messiah. And as they're walking, a stranger shows up and starts talking with them. He's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they say to this stranger that is Jesus, but they don't realize it's Jesus. They say, hey, are you new around here? There was Jesus, mighty in word and deed. We thought that he was going to be the redeemer of Israel, but he was crucified. And today's the third day since these things have happened and, and some of the women that we know have said that they've seen him. And then Jesus, it says, it says starting from Moses, going through the prophets and the Psalms, the, the, the poetry books, he goes through and talks about how the Messiah needed to suffer 
and die. That you got to understand biblically he needed to suffer and die. That that was part of it. And then they say to him, hey, let's keep talking. And they invite him to sit at a meal with them. And now this is where we pick it up. Luke 24, verses 30 and 31. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took uh, took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. Once Jesus prayed and he handed them the bread with those nail-scarred hands, that's when their eyes were opened and they knew that it was him. And the question becomes, how could they not have recognized him? The answer for that question, my friend, is not found in the Gospels. It's found in the Old Testament prophets. Um, In the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, the prophet writes this about the Messiah. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, and I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. From this verse, we can, we can surmise that as part of Jesus' torture, when he was scourged and beaten by the Roman soldiers, that they ripped his beard out. And that could be part of how they didn't recognize him. Uh, a Jewish man without a beard is not something that you would see all the time. But the next one, I think, is even more um, gripping. It says this in Isaiah 52. It says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. The scourging, the beating from the soldiers, and ultimately the cross disfigured Jesus' body, and he did not look the same. The disciples meet Jesus on the mountain in Galilee, and some, notice what it says, that when they saw him, they worshiped him. Some realized that it was him immediately, and they worshiped him, and others were doubted. They weren't sure at first. But when he spoke the words that have now become some of those most famous passages in the Bible, that's when they knew it was him. Look what happens in verse 18. It says, and when he came or literally came near and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Pause there. Last thing I want to tell you. Disciples live out the message of Jesus. This passage to go into all the world is what theologians call the Great Commission. It's a charge that Jesus gives to his disciples to make disciples who will follow Jesus him. He's asking his disciples to reproduce themselves into others. And where does it begin? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's where it begins. At conversion comes baptism. Now understand in the Jewish context, baptism was part of a ceremonial washing for those who were entering the temple. And it was part of Gentiles would be baptized in what was called a mikvah, which is a small pool, uh, who were converting to Judaism. That was the last thing that they would do. They'd go through the rite of circumcision, and then they would go into the water, signifying walking away from their life and the gods that they had worshipped, and then they come out of the water being a child of Abraham and uh, being embraced by the covenant that God made uh, with Abraham, and then that was realized through Moses. It became part of Christian ceremony when John the Baptist was baptizing people. But see, the thing about John the Baptist, it wasn't, baptizing people was not uncommon. The fact that he was baptizing Jews is what made it scandalous. That's why, if you can remember all the way back in in Matthew chapter 3, he baptizes, and and the Jewish leaders are like, what are you doing? 
The whole point is, why are you baptizing Jews? And John the Baptist's answer is, don't think that just because you say I'm a child of Abraham makes you right with God. God can raise up children of Abraham from the rocks. Instead, these people are being baptized, a symbol of repentance, because they haven't been walking with God, and they're making a decision that they do want to walk with God. Jesus' disciples began baptizing as they were decide, for people who were deciding to follow Jesus. And this is always the dividing line. Baptism is always the thing that separates the fans of Jesus from the followers of Jesus. And, and listen, if you're like me, you're like, oh, I was baptized as an infant. I was baptized as an infant also, and I have the pictures to prove it. The problem is, is that I don't remember any of it, and even though I, I was there, but um, the Bible doesn't record one instance of infant baptism. Uh, it always is a person that is making a decision when they're old enough to follow Jesus. It's always an issue of conscience. And uh, that's why uh, years ago when uh, I baptized my niece and my nephew, my daughter Mia, who was about five years old at the time, she wanted me to baptize her. And I said, listen, I think you're a little too young. Let me, um, let's wait until you're about eight. You really understand what baptism is. And, that night, and Mia accepted the answer. She wasn't happy about it, but she accepted the answer. And that night, you know, Carrie put her in the tub, and um, she came in to check on her, and Mia was holding her nose, and she was leaning back in the water, and, uh, and, and Carrie's like, Mia, what are you doing? She's like, oh, mommy, I'm baptizing myself. And she says, you can't baptize yourself. She's like, sure, watch me. And uh, she goes back in the water again. And uh, now, let me tell you something. It, uh, you laugh, but when Mia was about three years old, she had this little kid's Bible that she would read all the time. And one day, we were reading the Bible as a family, and we started talking about, and I felt like at that age, she, she could understand the gospel. And that is, uh, this, it, and just once again, in simple terms, that God loves you but that sin separates us from God. Thankfully, Jesus came into the world. And because Jesus came into the world and he died for us and rose again, we can, through faith in him, we can have a relationship with God. So I'm explaining all of that. And I'm like, so I'm like, so mama, do you want to invite Jesus to come into your life, to be your savior and Lord and all that? She's like, oh, it's okay, dad, I already did that. I'm like, and when did, pray tell, this happen? And she says, oh, I did it by myself. And, 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 and I'm like, uh, okay. When, explain that to me. She's like, well, one day I was in my room and I prayed to God by myself and uh, just, you know, prayed that. And, and I'm like, now why would you go do a thing like that? And my wife was like, calm down. And, uh, and, then, and so then I go into like, you know, uh, pastor mode and I'm like, okay, I want you to tell me exactly what you prayed. And I'm thinking, if there's one word I'm telling her, this didn't, it didn't count, we're doing this now. And, uh, and so I'm like, what, huh? Tell me exactly what you prayed. So anyway, she prayed, and it was right. It's so frustrating. And, um, and, uh, and, and I'm like, okay, great. And, uh, and I'm like, Mia, first, that's wonderful. Secondly, I think you're the only person on earth that's ever led themselves to Jesus. And third, no more significant spiritual moments without mommy or daddy there. And, uh, and she agreed to that. But listen, but that's why baptism is always an issue of conscience. It's an issue where you are making a conscious decision that you're going to follow Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, the apostle Peter says this, says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience or a clear conscience towards God. Now, can I, can I share something with you that I think is really important? And that is this, sometimes, and I, and I get this question a good bit because, you know, we do baptisms here and the biggest hesitation that people have, and maybe you're in the place where you say, man, I want to be baptized, but there's, I've got a hang up. Well, let me tell you what a, a person's um, number one hang-up is, is they feel like, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. 
Um, I got to fix some things in my life before I can be baptized. I get this question all the time. How do I know that I'm ready? I don't feel like I'm ready. And, and so my first answer is, well, what does being ready feel like? Um, and they don't really know the answer to that question because I don't think being ready is like a sensation. Um, I said, it's not about what you feel. It's about things, certain things being true. That's how you know you're ready for something is what, what is true. And so I said, um, I said, okay, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions and I'll let you know whether I think you're ready or not. And they say, okay. I'll say, number one, are you a Christian? They, they'll say, yes. I say, okay, what does that mean to be a Christian? And they say, well, it means that God loves me, but sin breaks the relationship. Jesus came into the world and died for us and rose again. And now through Jesus, I can know God and I can spend an eternity with him. I say, okay, but you're going to go to heaven, but are you going to heaven because you're an awesome person? And they're like, no, I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. And I say, guess what? You're now ready. And, um, and I can tell you with full, if you need me to sign something, you're ready. You know, I give you my stamp of approval. Why? Because all that it takes to be ready is to make a to, you've made a decision to follow Jesus. It's a person who has a conscience to say, I have a clear conscience before God. I'm a forgiven person. And listen, and, and here's, and, and, and this is the thing that I think is really important. Baptism is easy. If, if there was something in the Bible that said, if you want to be a Christian and spend eternity with God, you have to go climb this mountain, we'd all be buying hiking gear. But God hasn't told us that. He has just said, Hey, be, be baptized. Ident what is baptism? Going into the water, identifying with Jesus in his death, coming up out of the water, identifying with Jesus in his resurrection. That's what baptism means. And yet, sometimes we, we hesitate because, listen, baptism is easy to do. But that also means it's easy not to do. And one of the challenges that we face is sometimes we're, we're struggling because we think, man, I, I got this situation and I don't really know what to do and I'm praying for God to tell me what I should do. Can I just encourage you in something. Sometimes the direction that we're looking for is on the other side of your obedience to God. What that, let me tell you what that means is. What that means is when you are confronted with the things that you don't know what to do, make sure you're doing the things that you do know what to do. If, you have, if, you're, if you're someone who's given their life to Jesus and you've never been baptized as an adult, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to get baptized. That is a command of Jesus. It's not a great suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's a command of his. And that's why, listen, on the connection card that you filled out, on the, on the back of it. And you'll see this where it says, my next step is, and we even spelled it wrong for you. So it says, be baptized. And on May 7th, if you want to be baptized, we will baptize the heck out of you. Uh, and so, and listen, some of you, we need to hold you down a little longer just to make sure it all gets out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Although we have had people request that. And you know, we want to honor requests as much as we can. And uh, I'm kidding. But listen, but what's the point? The point is, is that sometimes if you will do the things that you know God has called you to do, the things that you're unsure about become a lot clearer. So he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then it says this, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Can I tell you something? As I look at the church as a whole, not just us, but I mean every church all over the globe, the biggest need that I see in churches today there is a lack of teaching. There is a lot of preaching and there is more hype than we know what to do with, but there is very little teaching. And it shouldn't surprise us that there's so little teaching as to why believers are weak and fragile in their faith and why the culture has almost taken over uh, the church. Listen, that's why for the last 22 years, I have made it my mission. So this is something I started the other day. 
For the last 22 years, I've made it my mission to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse by verse, chapter by chapter by chapter, because I know of no better way to help people grow spiritually than to get God's word into them. I appreciate that. So if you say, I want to grow spiritually, and what what are the areas I need to grow in? Listen, um, I wrote my whole master's thesis on this, and I got an A, so that just shows you. This is for real, all right? So, um, but I, I wrote my whole master's thesis on this, and that is, how do we how do disciples grow? And I, 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 there's three areas of growth. And this wasn't something I came up with. This is something that we see Jesus repeats in all the Gospels. And, um, but there's three areas of growth. If you say, I want to be a mature disciple, there's three areas of growth. Here's the first one. What do you have to grow? Number one, your head. What does that mean? You have to grow in the knowledge of God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means that you cannot know God's will if you don't know God's word. You and I cannot grow to maturity until we have accepted God's word as the authority in our lives. And here's why you want to grow to maturity. When you obey God, even when you don't understand it, when you obey God, even when you say, I can't imagine that this is going to work, but God, I'm going to do it because you told me to do it. It leads to so much joy and blessing in your life. And that's why, listen, people who are mature are encouraging you over and over to trust God and do what he says. The second area you need to grow is your hands. That is not just grow in the knowledge of God, but grow in your service to God. And this is where we take the things that we've learned And then we take our gifts and we take our talents and we take the things that we're passionate about and we put them into service for God. The Apostle Peter would say it this way, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with the energy and strength that God provides. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Every single believer is part of the body of Christ. And we all have a role to play. But understand that we don't grow to maturity just receiving and taking in and just um, enlarging our knowledge. That's only part of it. We've got to take what we've learned and then pour it out into the lives of others and take our gifts and talents and use them in the body for us to continue to grow. And then the third one is this, is you've got to grow your heart. And this is when we grow in emotional maturity. It is impossible to grow beyond your own emotional maturity. This is why there are people who are really a conundrum because there are people that we've met and they are angry and bitter and hostile and yet, they'll also tell you that they love Jesus. And, and we're like, well, how, how is that? Like, why, you know, that's like they're going to start a ministry, jerks for Jesus. And, uh, and, and you're like, well, wh- how? I just came up with that now. Um, and so, like, how is that? And listen, I'm not saying they don't love Jesus. I, I think they're probably trying to love God to the best of their ability. The problem is, because they're emotionally stunted and emotionally immature, Their spiritual maturity can never grow beyond where they are emotionally. And this is why when Jesus is talking about loving God, it's not just 
um, what you know or what you do. It's with your whole being. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, now Jesus says this in Matthew 22, but I'm giving you the Gospel of Mark passage. It says, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus is telling us if you want to be his disciple and you want to be mature, we have to grow in all three areas. But then the last thing I want to tell you this and then I'm done. Why does Matthew end this way? There's more that happens. But why does he end here? Because he's trying to explain something to us. Remember, I've been saying this for now, you know, 14 months, that the Gospel of Matthew is written so that it was written to a Jewish audience to, to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. And now at the end, when he says, go into all the world and make disciples, he is inviting every person who reads this to make the decision to become a disciple of Jesus because all of us are links in the chain. These 11 made disciples of their generation. And then those guys made disciples of the next generation. And, and that generation made disciples of the following generation. And if we will follow the chronology, it will eventually get to us. You hearing the gospel and your life being transformed by Jesus is directly linked to these 11 guys on the mountain listening to Jesus and obeying him to go into all the world and preach. And listen, I think about my wife and I, we heard the gospel from my brother. My brother heard the gospel from a friend of his named Stephen. Stephen heard the gospel from his mom growing up. Uh, Stephen's mom heard the gospel from Billy Graham at a crusade. Billy Graham heard the gospel from a guy named Billy Sunday, and he came forward when the second invitation was given as a young man. And if you and I will keep following the chain back, we will end up on a mountain in Galilee, 11 guys who decided that what Jesus said was true because the resurrection happened and that their lives were changed, and now everybody's life has changed. And so... That's how the world changes. People change through the gospel. Then families begin to change. Then neighborhoods change. Then cities change. And then nations change. And then I love how it ends the promise that Jesus gives to every disciple of his, including you and including me. He says, I'm always with you. I'm always with you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'll be with you to the end of your life because guess what? The end of your life isn't the end. It's simply the end of the beginning. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you for this incredible gospel. Thank you for this message that you've given to us. And that, Lord, you want to transform our lives. God, you've transformed many of our lives. And I just pray that we would live the kind of life that is so different, that's so radical that it would impact every person we come into contact with and that those folks would see that there is a God in heaven who loves them and that they would come to know you through the testimony of those of us who are here, just like the 11 on the mountain in Galilee, that this would be our moment, that we would hear your word and obey. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, 
All you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.